So this morning we're going to be reading from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. May we be blessed this morning by the reading and the hearing of these words of Scripture. Let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for this place, this time, family and friends, this opportunity that you've given us to gather together to worship you, to sing praises, to to enjoy being in your company and being in each other's company. A time to share concerns and pray together. And a time to turn to the scriptures together. Lord, we pray this morning that it, it not just be an opportunity for us to grow in knowledge or to engage in uh, theological gymnastics. But that it be a time for us to open ourselves up to your transforming love and grace and mercy that we witness, we experience. And so this morning, I, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross so that it is what we experience your grace and your mercy, your love, your peace, your joy, your justice, your righteousness. I pray that you would order the words that come out of my mouth. Let us come face to face with you. For all this in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So, we started the sermon series called If the Church Were Christian last week. 
and I'm not going to re-explain that. Um, but we are looking at what does it mean to gather as the church, to call ourselves the church, and to claim to be following Jesus. The thing we did talk about last week is being a Christian, at least this is what I think we talked about, um, being a Christian isn't about adhering to a, a specific set of beliefs about Jesus. It, it's about finding yourself enamored with and inspired by Jesus to the point that you want to shape your life in that mold, that you want to become Christ-like, that you want to follow Jesus and become like Jesus. So as Christians, we should never find coming out of our mouth things like, well, that was I couldn't do that. I'm not Jesus. No, you look at Jesus and you say, I should strive for that. I can do that. Jesus seems to think, in the, at least the stories that we have from his first followers, that you can. And so let's not, let's not make Jesus a liar by doubting what Jesus believes to be true. The interesting thing is what Jesus believed to be true about you. I'm right, and I have found that Jesus has a lot more faith in me than I do often in Jesus. Definitely more faith in me than I have in me. Because I know me. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus actually does or not. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a lot, man. So, okay. So, if the church were Christian, perhaps we might actually have a different view of humanity than we do today. Often, the traditional Christian view of humanity is that we are broken. That there is something inherently wrong with us and that we stink. Right? Just for a moment, think about two of the traditional songs we sung today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a piece of garbage like me. <laughs> right? You can use other words than garbage, but that's the message. Right? And what about this old rugged cross? Right? Oh, the wonderful things it did for such a sinner as me. Right? And that's the image that we carry around, that, that, that has been handed to us, that has been given to us over and over and over again. It's been driven home. And it works really well if you're trying to control and manipulate people. Convince them how horrible they are, and the only place that they can like, become better is through you. What are they going to do if they really want to become better is become dependent upon you. But is, this, is, is it fine when the primary image that we have of ourselves is one of brokenness? Is that, is that good? 
Is it healthy? I always find it very interesting, right? So like the gospel means the good news. Here's the good news. You suck. (laughs) Okay. I saw a sign. Think about it. The gospel. Jesus. You're supposed to be like, there's life in Jesus, right? Absolutely. How come then when I'm driving back from my friend Doc's house and I'm driving down 109 and I see a sign that says, warning, big white letters on a red sign, warning, Jesus is coming. Wow. The good news of Jesus Christ. Watch out. See, Religion tells us who we are. And then the myths and the stories that, pass, that, that, that they pass on, that we pass on, are critical in our moral and spiritual development. And so they have to be carefully chosen. So this book is full of, and I'm not using myth in like the terms of a, a made-up story. I'm using it in, in what it actually means, right? And, and so these stories... There's multiple stories in here. And the reason that so many of us can read the same book and come away with different beliefs about who we are, who God is, what the world is like, is because of the stories that we choose to focus on in this book. Different, different ones. So, so, and that's why, like, when people say, I just want to have a biblical marriage. I'm like, okay, which, which ones? <laughs> which stories are you looking to for your biblical marriage? Because that might work out well if you're looking for polygamy. <laughs> if you're okay with convincing people that your wife is actually your sister, then go for that biblical marriage. Right? But that's usually not what they're referring to. So, one such story in our tradition is the story of Adam and Eve. Right? The doctrine of original sin, which asserts that because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, all humans, therefore, were born in a state of sin, was actually popularized by Augustine. This has been a core tenet of the church ever since. A significant segment of the church has used this tenet and its diminished view of humanity in order to gain followers, power, influence, and obedience. Emphasizing this story and subsequent doctrine which developed causes us to assume the worst about humanity, and I would argue actually even the worst about God. And then it causes us to have to do those theological gymnastics that I was talking about earlier. Because if you really follow the logic that we have with original sin, the doctrine of original sin, what you have to sort of be able to get your mind around is that God is willing to destroy millions of lives because of the actions of two people. And reconcile that with, but God is loving. Can we be honest for a moment? That's hard. 
would you trust your child with an adult who said, no, of course they're going to be safe with me. Unless they, dis- unless they disobey, then I'm going to burn them. <laughs> no. You wouldn't. You would get as far from that other adult, and you would probably call the authorities. But, but preceding the Adam and Eve story, there's another more uplifting creation story. And I wonder, like, what would have happened if, if Augustine, rather than focusing on the Adam and Eve story, just went one chapter before and used that story to develop doctrine? And how much different would the Christian doctrine be today Because doctrine builds off of doctrine, right? So you have the doctrine of original sin, and from there you continue to build out all of these things. Atonement theory, which is in Scripture, is built off of the doctrine of original sin. By the way, there are other, within the Bible, there's other theories that the authors offer up to try to figure out what actually was going on with Jesus and the whole resurrection thing. All right. So in in the narrative that we read earlier, the one that precedes Adam and Eve, men and women were actually made in the image of God together. Did you catch that? Right? They're urged to procreate. They're entrusted with the stewardship of creation. They're blessed by God, and they're pronounced good. The difference between this story and the Adam and Eve story is so vast that it can be startling. The first story has men and women created simultaneously, suggesting equality. That doesn't work if your system is based on male dominance. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Augustine read it and was like, oh, I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> Just a thought, right? The second story has Eve created from Adam, implying subservience. The first story urges men and women to procreate, implying a divine blessing on sexual intimacy. The Adam and Eve story has them cowering in the garden, ashamed of their nudity. If you are going to hold your clergy to celibacy, skip the first one. Go to the second. The first story suggests the characteristics of our relationship with God are wonder, trust, blessing, and love. The Adam and Eve story features disobedience, failure, punishment, and censor. And so then in the language of the priest and writer Matthew Fox, one story is about original sin, the other is about original blessing. I like to think of it in terms of original sin versus original righteousness. And I think original righteousness runs throughout the scriptures, right? We've talked about this before. You only go through the process of trying to reclaim and recover something if it has value. If it has no value, you write it off. Why is the Bible the story of God constantly trying to woo us back? If we are garbage. Every Sunday night, 
I put that out by the curb. I'm not rifling through my garbage Sunday night quickly to see if there's anything that I can save. Had the church chosen to emphasize the created in God's image narrative, it would have radically altered the church's message and subsequent doctrines. And and we can't say, well, that's not biblical. It is. Perhaps it's time for us to reclaim original righteousness over original sin. To be honest with you, that's one of the things I loved about the United Methodist doctrine. What would happen? What would happen if we stopped the guilt and the rejection and the fear? And we simply said, you know what? Enough assuming the worst about humanity and the worst about God. We're going to start assuming the best about God and about humanity. Right, there, there's a story in this book about a woman who has said enough. And I want to you know, I was like, I'll just tell the story. And I was like, no, I'm going to actually read it. All right, so the author of the book begins by saying, I know a woman who said enough to her church. Eh. She had been raised in a fundamentalist household, married a man with a similar religious perspective, had a daughter with him, and dutifully took her to church every Sunday. One Sunday morning, her minister delivered a sermon in which he explained why God wanted women to be subservient to men. She looked at her four-year-old daughter, realized the kind of world this man's words were creating for her child, and that afternoon told her husband she would no longer attend that church. Her husband resisted her newfound courage, citing various scriptures to support his argument, then finally demanded they met with the pastor for counseling. And to this, she consented. The next morning, they met in the pastor's office. Their minister began by praying at the woman, asking God to soften her heart and to bring her rebellion to an end. (laughs) Right? And in the past, in the past, she buckled under such intimidation. But this time her resolve was deep. She laughed, told the men she would not be an accomplice in their efforts to subjugate her daughter, then informed them she would be looking for a new church where all people were valued. I'm going to say... I wish she knew grace. And I am talking about you. The pastor soberly soberly informed her that he would be praying for her soul. (laughs) And she told him, and I quote, my soul is just fine. Thank you. In fact, it's never been better. We, we can chuckle because as United Methodists, we think we've put to bed that debate. But there's others. When we take seriously our human potential, we begin creating communities that affirm and encourage all people. Our prayers embody God's concern for all people and the delight and gift of human life. We take seriously the power of human intellect and reason. We care less about keeping people in their supposed places and care more about the divine life present in all people. 
We believe God's reign is best served when people and all of creation are treated respectfully and graciously. A primary concern for Jesus was helping others become mature, spiritually, ethically, emotionally, and relationally. The church has typically understood salvation as being rescued from our sin and going to heaven when we die because of our creation myth that we have, if if myth is a hard word, the creation story that we have chosen to focus on. But maybe if we focused on the first one, right, we could come to a place where what would it look like if we believed that salvation was actually a lifelong journey toward maturity, love, and wholeness? I'm, I'm being saved. I have moments when I'm there and moments when I'm not. But I'm, I'm growing. <laughs> I'm being transformed. Does that sound biblical? Sure it is. Jesus exemplifies this maturity in love and wholeness. He's the one that we can look to and say, this life is what it means to be saved. This is what it looks like to be fully human. And we can be like him. Think about the way that he he interacted with Zacchaeus. The interaction that he has with this guy, I was talking to somebody talking to Lucas. Those of you that know Lucas. I was talking to him, uh, I'll just say the other day, it could have been a couple weeks ago now, but we were talking about tax collectors. And he said, it never, it never dawned on me just how bad tax collectors were until I connected them to the people in concentration camps that policed their own people. That's a tax collector. That's who Jesus calls out of a tree and says, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. He doesn't then convince Zacchaeus of his predetermined place in hell. He simply eats with him, has fellowship with him. He's generous to Zacchaeus. And that generousness becomes contagious. Right? With Jesus, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus, right, causes him to assume Jesus' spirit of generosity. Can we replicate that generosity? This doesn't mean that, that we're blind to human failings, but we would know but we would no longer believe that failures are the whole measure of one's life. He didn't look at Zacchaeus and see a tax collector. He looked at Zacchaeus and saw Zacchaeus. A person of worth. Or what about the story of the the man praying 
in Luke chapter 18. Let me flip over there real quick. Oh, where is that one? I wrote it down. 18, 9 through 14. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. <laughs> I got to read that again. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. That's what it says. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, before we judge the guy, right? Think about what we just said about who a tax collector is. That's hard. That's hard. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalted themselves, who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I point out that this is a difficult thing, right? Because to be honest with you, I'm a lot more like the Pharisee than I am the tax collector. Right? I might argue that maybe as a church, too long, we've identified with the Pharisee much more than the tax collector. But whenever I read these stories, I'm never the Pharisee. I'm always the hero. But maybe if we would stop praying like this man, seeing only sin in others and being blind to their promise, maybe we could see ourselves and others as God does, beloved, accepted, valued, cherished, of infinite worth and potential. Let's reclaim Genesis chapter 1 and become more like Christ. Amen.